So a lot of times I get asked the question, what is enlightenment? And we've been throwing the word enlightenment around a lot, and I'm actually not going to answer it. (laughs) I'll let you try to figure it out or maybe experience it. But what I will say is that um, there is another way of looking at enlightenment, which is rather than it being this like, boom, experience or mystical experience and suddenly you, ha- you wake up in a certain way, that, it's, that one of the ways of talking about it is that it's a cultivation of qualities. That as you sit on the cushion doing exactly what you're doing, sitting here, being with your breath, being with your pain, getting bored, restless, anxious, happy, a moment of peace, okay, relax, when's lunch, you know? I mean, that's the experience. But what's going on is you are cultivating qualities of heart and mind that are qualities that lead to awakening. And they're qualities that are inherent in an awakened mind. So it has this kind of double-edged thing going on. It's both we're cultivating and it's what's already present in a mind that's awake. So it's a way to talk about enlightenment because as you hear these qualities, and they're qualities that in some ways are very ordinary qualities. They're qualities that you already have to a certain degree. They're qualities that you cultivate in various ways in your life. So for example, one of the qualities is patience. And if you spend any time in traffic, you're cultivating patience. Now, if you think of it on an ordinary level, it's a, it's a good quality to have. But as this quality grows and grows and ripens and comes to maturity, it takes on new characteristics. And these characteristics merge with these other beautiful qualities. And then you can imagine sort of the creation of a mandala or a painting where all these beautiful qualities of patience and loving kindness and wisdom and ease and equanimity and determination. I'm just mentioning many of them. They come together and they form this whole, um, this palette of being awake. So this is what we'll be looking at tonight. These qualities have a name. It's called the paramis or the paramitas. And I'll probably call them both during the course of the talk. And the word just means the perfections of virtue. Another translation that I really like is the forces of purity in the mind. Qualities that make our hearts and minds become more loving and spacious and relaxed and joyful and all the good stuff. Okay, just really simply, how to, what you're doing here, it sometimes doesn't feel like it, but it's leading to lots of good stuff. <laughs> and sometimes you get glimpses of it. And when you get a glimpse of it, you can remind yourself that you are getting a glimpse of an awakened mind, an awakened mind that is free from grasping, free from aversion, a mind that's woken up. So there are 10 qualities, 10 of these paramis, and I'll read them in their typical order that they're talked about. One is generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, 
energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. And as you heard me read the list, you might have thought, oh, I might have one or two of those, but not the other one. Oh, no, no, I do not have patience. Or I'm not too generous, but actually I'm pretty determined. And there's also a way that we're all born with them to a certain degree. We're born with different degrees. And all of it can be cultivated. Nobody, it's, sometimes we have this idea that, you know, somebody's born like Mother Teresa and then there's the rest of us. It's not true. We can all cultivate every quality and we will see it. We will see it in our lives. We will see that suddenly we're manifesting it in ways we completely surprise ourselves. And that's the beauty of practice. That's the beauty of what we're doing here on this cushion. So the first one I'm going to talk about, I'm going to do my own order. And um, it's just the way that today occurred to me seemed important to talk about them. So the first one I'll talk about is morality. And I know that word is a little rough, morality. We hear morality and we think, uh uh-oh, rules, what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do. I actually really have grown to love the concept of morality or ethics might be a little bit easier to handle. We call it sila here in this practice. And... um, It's simply guidelines, at the most basic level, it's guidelines for living our life, for how to be in the world in a healthy and sane way, in a way that doesn't harm other people. And I actually feel really lucky to have it. Sometimes I think of my, my ethics as my best friend. And the reason I think that is because it's something I can completely rely on. I can rely on those five precepts that we took when we first got here. I can rely on them. I know I trust them completely. And when I practice and I live my life in accordance with them, it just naturally creates a kind of happiness, a kind of joy. And so for me, integrity is about not... Maybe that's the best translation, integrity. It's not about what makes me feel good, but what makes me feel good about myself. And so I live with the practice of non-harming, of not killing and not stealing, and being wise with my sexuality as best I can, and not uh, harming people through my speech, and also not misusing drugs or alcohol. And these are these commitments to my integrity, to this protection that... um, that, that I practice with. And all of these qualities, all of these paramitas, we develop as a practice. So when we start, it's usually, you know, someone tells us it's a good idea. Okay, I'm going to stop using drugs because it's a good idea. Or I'm going to not stop lying because someone told me that it helped them. So I'm going to stop for that reason. So we might, we might do that. But after a while, we begin to see results in our lives. So we might notice that if we stop lying, um, people trust us more, and that feels good. So it's just, it's very simple. There's a, there, it, it's, it moves from that proscriptive level, you should, into, hmm, this kind of works for me. 
And then the third level is when we begin to see it more as this quality of awakened mind that I'm referring to. And that's when we embody it. When our morality, when our ethics, when our integrity is so strong that we're like this pillar of trustworthiness. And I don't know if you know people in your life who feel are very trustworthy and how that feels when you're with them. It's like there's some quality they're emanating. Like, oh, I would trust this person with my life. This person is so dedicated to non-harming and I'm so moved by that. And we can, we can embody that. It begins with practice. You'll see it in very simple ways, and slowly it'll grow, it'll ripen, it will bear fruit. So the second one is renunciation. And last night uh, when Deborah talked about it, she talked about moderation. In other words, you're going after, you want, when she really, really fell in love and with that person she didn't actually talk to or know. Um, And then she realized it was better to give it up, to let go, to moderate this desire. And this word renunciation sometimes has a bad rap. Like people think about the Buddhists and they come here and they go, oh no, am I coming to this retreat center and I have to give everything up and then I'm going to be... You know, what about my life? What about my passions? What about the people and the things I care about? Renunciation, on one level, it has this element, I, and I really am preferring what Deborah's talking about with moderation, not going to one extreme or another extreme of indulgence or avoidance. But it's also talking about a quality of our heart, a quality of our mind of letting go. And so... Of course, you're going to love things of this world. There's no question. You can love chocolate. You can love your boyfriend or girlfriend. You can be passionate about social change. You can be, you know, whatever it is you're passionate about music, art. The teachings of renunciation are not about letting go of what's important and what we're passionate about. The teachings are about where we get attached so much that it hurts, and then we suffer. It's when our happiness becomes completely dependent upon that thing or that person or that experience. And that's where the suffering comes in. And that's where the wisdom of moderation and renunciation is invited in. So renunciation on the level of working with our hearts and minds, we're doing it on the cushion. I mean, you renounced when you came here. You gave up your iPods and your, you know, your favorite TV show that you had to watch, but you don't have to do it now. And um, you gave up your friendships. And just for this five days, you're practicing this renunciation. We practice it in the outer form so that we can teach our minds on an inner level how to let go. And that's what you're doing. You know, you're sitting here moment after moment. Oh, I'm in this pleasant fantasy. Okay, I know it's really great. All right, all right, all right, let it go. Okay, you're seeing yourself caught in wanting a person and wanting a thing and in aversion towards something and pushing it away. All of this, it, this practice is about inviting us moment after moment after moment to come back into the present moment, to renounce everything except the present moment. 
And it's a profound practice, and it's not easy, as you're seeing, right? It's not easy. The Buddha said, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. This is his teaching of letting go. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. In other words, most of the time we're, we're caught in this sense of self and this me that um, feels very important. You know, we feel important. It's me. I'm, I have ideas. I have things that I have to do. I'm, you know, I'm an important person, which is fine. It's fine. I mean, it's natural. What the Buddha is talking about is the way we get stuck in this sense of self, this identity, and we don't want to renounce this sense of me and mine, and then we suffer. And it hurts. It actually hurts, and you can see for yourself. So I want to say a little, uh, just a little way of thinking about, or let's say this. We're practicing disidentification. The practice of disidentification means not taking things so personally. So when you're caught in something like, oh, I'm such a bad meditator, the person next to me, their posture is so good and mine is so horrible, do we have to believe it so much? If we stop believing it, if we stop clinging onto it as a sense of me and my, we can relax and let go, and this renunciation quality happens. So one way to do that is this mnemonic I like to use, and it's called RAIN, R-A-I-N. And you can use this no matter what you're dealing with. It could be physical pain. It could be emotional pain. It really works well, I think, with emotions. So the R is to recognize, to see what you're caught in. Oh, it's grief. It's, it's fear. It's worry. Whatever it is, you can, you can notice it. You're experiencing it in your body and mind, and you can recognize it, what it is. Label it. The A is acceptance. And it means... It's okay. Whatever it is you're experiencing is okay. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. Whatever it is you're experiencing is okay. And sometimes we don't feel the acceptance. So what we feel is resistance. I don't want to be feeling this fear. I don't want to be feeling this anger or this grief. So then we can just relax and say, resistance is here. Can we accept our resistance? Can we be present with it? The I is to investigate. What does it feel like in our bodies? What's, what's going on here? Oh, there's some pain, there's burning, there's pounding, there's a sense of vibration. As we investigate it, the fourth quality comes, the non-identification or disidentification, but then it would spell raid, R-A-I-D, <laughs> you know, which we don't want to do. Um, so non-identification... <laughs> When we've gone through this process of recognizing, accepting, investigating, and then in that process, boom, it's like suddenly things stop being so personal. It stops being so much about me. We can do this all the time. We can practice it here. We can practice it at home. I was just teaching a retreat, and um, <laughs> and. I had that suddenly I got caught in this little thing. I was teaching, I teach these retreats for teenagers, and I got caught, I was looking, I went into lunch, and I looked on the table, and we were having these veggie burgers. 
And I looked around and they had tomatoes and lettuce and uh, you know various things, but they didn't have cheese. And suddenly I get this idea in my mind, what do you mean there's no cheese? Veggie burgers need cheese. <laughs> and I just I got convinced of this. And for the next 15 minutes, all through the lunch line, and when I walked over to the table, and the first thing I did when I sat down with the other teachers and said, there's no cheese. <laughs> and it, what had happened was my mind had gotten stuck. It was clinging on to this pretty silly thing, right? And... Um, and I kept thinking about it for, you know, and, and <laughs> I know, it was so, anyway. Um, so after a while, and it was going on, and, and, you know, I tasted the veggie burgers, and the veggie burgers actually didn't need cheese. They were really, really good, but that didn't stop my clinging mind. My mind just was really convinced, wow, if the cooks knew what they were doing, they would have had cheese. And so, so about a few hours later in the day, I realized I was in this, and so I stopped, <laughs> I recognized wanting cheese, <laughs> recognized that my mind was clinging. <laughs> I said, can I be with this? Uh, okay, I guess so, you know, all right, all right, it's okay, it's okay, acceptance, investigate. And I started to feel in my body, and I felt this clutching in my body, and this hating it, and being mad, and, and suddenly, I started to, as I, it just relaxed a little bit, and I started to feel this sense of, oh, I just want the teenagers to be happy. You know, I just care about them. I thought cheese was a good idea. I don't know why, I just did. And I saw that, and it was like I could bring compassion to myself for that situation, and the clinging began to relax. And then everybody teased me because I went to lunch. I told, I told the kids that story that night because I was talking about the same thing. And then every day people would say, ah, no cheese on the table. And, um, but it's a reminder, anything we can do to remind us of how not to cling. Ajahn Chah says this. He's a Thai forest master and one of the lineage holders that we, in our lives, He says, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect any praise or reward. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. And that's the promise of a mind that's really renounced When we talk about this quality, this paramita of renunciation, it's a mind, it's like the wind, you know, just things just come and go, and our mind doesn't cling on. And so all of life is happening. It's not like things have stopped or that, you know, we've shut down our life. It's just that our mind isn't identifying. It's it's letting go, letting go all the time, and it's such a beautiful quality. Wes, who's doing the retreat up there, said that he, they were sitting out on, outside and it was really windy and he felt like the wind was blowing in one side of their body and all, everything they were attached to was blowing out the other side. And I asked him if it popped out their ears. And, um, but this sense of like being like the wind. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Don't take me too seriously. <laughs> So, so imagine the possibility of not taking me so seriously, but also not taking yourself so seriously. 
don't take your, really, don't take yourself so seriously. That, it, maybe that's what the Buddha was really saying, saying don't take yourself so seriously. When we take ourselves so seriously, it's all about me, 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 and I'm important, and I'm sad, and I'm going through my horrible nightmare, and I'm confused. And When we take ourselves less seriously, yeah, that stuff's happening too, but it's all okay. It's okay. So the third one I want to talk about is wisdom. And this wisdom is happening as we sit on our cushion. And the wisdom has so many manifestations, so many forms. And you've all, I mean, I've talked to so many of you, as have Deborah and Noah, and we hear your wisdom coming through. And it's mostly because you are having a chance to be away from all the distractions in life, to sit here with yourself and find out what's going on. And what happens when we do this when we do this practice, this vipassana practice, and vipassana just means seeing clearly, seeing clearly. We stop the distractions, we check into ourselves, into our bodies and minds and hearts, and we see what's there. And as we get more concentrated, because that helps us get focused, we get more and more concentrated coming back again and again to the present moment, It's as though reality reveals itself. And you have this moment of understanding, oh, my mind is like this. Or, wow, I've been really hard on myself my whole life. Or, I never noticed how beautiful the trees could be when you just look at them so carefully and closely. All this wisdom emerges from within you. And I really want to distinguish it from kind of knowledge and conceptual knowing that we're taught in school and that is sort of valued in our culture. This is different. It's the wisdom from inside us. It's like we make space. We push the clouds out of the way so our true wisdom can emerge. And I, I hope that each of you can trust that you have this wisdom. You know, sometimes it's hard to do because we, it's easy to feel confused and there's so many choices and decisions. And, but I've seen it again and again that once we push the clouds out of the way, maybe push is a little too strong, but once the clouds are allowed to sort of pass, we can check into ourselves and our body and our heart speaks and what's true comes forward. You can know. You can know what's true. We all have access to this inner wisdom. And I think this practice here is just a tremendous way to give us more and more access, to allow us to become freer and more clear. And when we see ourselves doing something in the meditation practice, it's like a microcosm of what we do out in the world. And we learn from that. And so you can see that, for instance, I need to have my cushion a really specific way, for instance. You know, wow, that's interesting. That's a quality about myself. How interesting. Or I remember once doing a retreat where I would take my shirt off, you know, like I was wearing a jacket, and I would take the jacket off and take the ja- put the jacket back on and take the jacket off and put the jacket back on probably 20 times in one walking meditation period. Because I, I, I was worried that I would be uncomfortable. 
And I didn't want, I wasn't willing to sit with the discomfort. And I realized that that was something I do a lot. That that's something true about me that I was really curious about and began to see what would it be like to sit with the discomfort. And when I did, I began to learn a lot about my fear of things being uncomfortable. So as this paramita, this parami of wisdom develops over time, we see this tremendous um, understanding that grows. And you can see it in people that you really respect, like the Dalai Lama or um, if someone you know who has a lot of wisdom. It's so beautiful to see a person who embodies this wisdom. And we have it within us. We can all have it within us. We all have it, and we can all manifest it. So the next one is determination. When we get the taste of wisdom, we might get more determined to find out how to have more of it. You know, well, maybe if I practice harder, I'll have more of it. And so determination is really interesting. Noah talked about it some, that effort that you make to become more awake. And it's a wonderful quality. And some of you may have it. I mean, I don't know how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but there are people who are very disciplined. And then there are people who say, I'm not disciplined at all. You know? and, but it can be cultivated. It can be cultivated. It's cultivated when we see results in our lives. So if you're feeling, if you're practicing, if you're meditating and you're seeing it's changing your life some, then you might want to practice more, meditate more, be more determined. It sometimes it gets really interesting. You know, if we're very determined. So for instance, you're meditating and you say, what would it be like if I didn't move for a sit? Oh, okay, I'm going to see. I'm just going to, I'm doing it in the spirit of experimentation not because, you know, the teachers told me to do it. They didn't do that. But just because I want to understand. And so you sit with a lot of determination. And then you learn something. And then you think, wow, that was interesting. I'm going to do it again. Or you stay up late and practice because you're really curious. So interest, interest in seeing results and then determination or discipline, or it, it builds on itself. So you know if you get in a, if you get in a um, routine, you'll have more and more discipline because you've got yourself, you know when you start exercising and then you continue exercising because you started exercising? It's a good thing, it builds on itself. When it begins to manifest in this quality that I'm talking about, this, right, this fruition, this enlightened, awakened mind, we see strong, beautiful determination for whatever it is one is determined about. So I think a lot, when I think about this quality, I think about Aung San Suu Kyi. You know who she is? The woman who is, has been under house arrest for 17 years in Burma who's been there because she was, she was elected democratically to, as the head of, the, um, of their government, and she was immediately arrested by their, um, their corrupt, currently in power government. And she's been under house arrest, 
holding this determination to be to stay in her country until there is freedom for all her people. She says She says she has she battles her isolation with the same single-mindedness sustained by her faith. She's her rooted reluctance to accept defeat. Nine years ago, when she, um, she talked about that the house, she could have left, she could have left at various points, but she said that being under house arrest has actually made her spiritually stronger. So that's a tremendous determination, and I just bow to her courage and hope for change in that country. So patience is another one. We need to temper our determination with patience. So we can transform. Part of what determination is about is really learning how to transform, to work hard to bring freedom to our hearts and mind, to bring this quality of non-identification, to work on our morality. Determination really supports all of that. But there needs to be some patience because it's slow. It can be slow. And again, Aung San Suu Kyi really embodies this quality of patience, of being able to wait. Someone I know talks about patience as unglamorous courage. You know, it's like we notice patience usually by our lack of patience, right? That's when we notice. We don't really think about patience, it's kind of subtle. But then when we don't have patience, we know we don't have patience, right? So patience is developed on the cushion, in case you haven't noticed. When you're sitting there and you're like, when's the bell going to ring? But you stay, that's patience. When you're waiting in line and they haven't rung the bell and you're standing there and you're thinking, please bow, please bow, please bow, so you can go and get your food. That's patience. Now, it's not patience when you're sitting there grasping an aversion. It's patience when you have that sense of, I can wait. When you just relax, I can wait. I can be with things as they are. I can be with them. It's okay. It's really, it's quite an amazing quality. And again, it's something we develop all the time. So it's interesting, when you go out into your life and you're in a traffic jam, And instead of sitting there thinking, damn, or whatever you're thinking, you could be thinking, oh, (laughs) I'm developing patience, which is a quality of one of these virtues. It's a great thing. It's like it changes the whole context of your life. Do you know what I'm saying? Like Like we bring in this spiritual understanding into every little act that we do, into this into the simplest act of waiting in line at the grocery store. Oh, I'm developing patience. That's a quality of my awakened heart. This, um, this note was sent to me many years ago. Um, about, and it, just, it really symbolized the quality of patience that was beginning to ripen in a yogi. And I think it may have even been on a young adult retreat. She said, the layer of grief and fear I was was within yesterday has dissolved. 
Today I'm present with the simple task of being present with my breath, my body, my wild mind, and the discipline and the process. And within this container, joy is arising and falling away and arising and falling away. And it was as though she was seeing so deeply into the impermanence of things. Because that's where patience comes. Patience knows deep down that things are going to come and go and come and go. And that is its nature. And that's why we um, are patient. So that quality of mind can be quite bright and developed and really beautiful. And you can imagine, you can imagine what it looks like when you just have endless patience, endless patience. So the next one is truthfulness. And I like to interpret it in a couple of different ways. In one sense, it's about not lying, right? And I know I had a really big change in my life when I decided not to lie. I did. I didn't ever really lie big time, but what I would do is I would exaggerate or I would, you know, you know I would do one of those, I'm sorry, I can't go because I'm sick, you know, that kind of thing, and when I wasn't sick. And um, I decided not to lie. And what happened was, one, it really forced me to start looking more closely at what I was avoiding in my life, what I was afraid of. It also, um, it cleared my mind. It made my mind clearer because I wasn't protecting anything. You know, and once I stopped lying externally, it was as though I got to see what was going on internally much more closely. And it's been kind of amazing to have that process happen. And the Buddha talked about being wise with our speech, being truthful, being kind, as kind as possible, being... uh, being useful, having our speech be useful. And one guideline you can use is, is my speech true, true, useful, and kind? Because sometimes it's true and useful, but it's not kind. And sometimes it's true and kind, but it's not useful. And you get the picture. So if you look at those three together, you can sometimes help you make decisions on whether or not to say something. I also think there's something in this parami about what I'm calling the truthfulness of being. As, our, as we walk on this spiritual path, even though we're working to transform and to become more patient or more generous or more kind or whatever it is, we also are becoming more truly who we are. And that's kind of an amazing process. I know I've gone through periods of my life where I said, oh, I hate that part about me and tried to push it away and I don't like this and that's okay or that's not spiritual or some story that I'd have about myself. And more and more as I walk the path, I come into realization that who I am just as I am, is okay. It's fine. 
And so I can rest more and more in this truthfulness of my being. I'm just me. You know, I have do these weird things and I have there are funny things that I like and I'm just me. I'm just exactly me as I am and that is okay. And so much of the self-hatred that we struggle with comes from this feeling like I'm not okay. But there and, and this is why, and let me say, this this Karmi is based on the earlier one of morality. Like, I could say I'm okay and I'm an axe murderer, but that's not okay. You know, like, we don't want to say, oh, I, I accept myself completely as I am and I'm an axe murderer, right? We want, I'm just picking up the theme from earlier this morning. But um, so we use the foundation of the five precepts and of truthfulness and kindness and And then, when we have our morality in place and we act in ways that are not harming, then we fully stand as ourselves. And this parmi is so beautiful when you see it it, it flourishing. When you see it in people, you look at someone and you say, they're really comfortable with who they are. That's kind of amazing. It's a beautiful way of being, and I just really want to stress that. For me, it was, it's a process. And I think the best way these days for me to describe it is myself without apologies. You know, it's not like I'm trying to get to something. I mean, always there's a sense of wanting to improve. You know, I can always be kinder or more patient with people, all of that. That's happening. But at the same time, the sense is just me. I'm just, I am who I am. No apologies. May I embody that? May I embody that? So the vision of this awakened quality is one of truthful speech, of healing words, of a person who is resting in themselves in a really whole and beautiful way. The next quality is the quality of energy. The spiritual energy, um, Noah talked about it some, the striving for freedom, the liberation, the energy. And it's, so we, we make the effort, we have the determination, and through that determination, energy arises. And it's spiritual energy. It's different than sort of the regular energy when you get up in the morning. It's an energy that's kind of rooted in concentration and mindfulness and joy. So you're, you're maybe experiencing it here. You were really sleepy the first couple of days, and suddenly maybe last night you wanted to stay up and practice. That's spiritual energy. If you sit... Okay, maybe not, all of you. <laughs> um, if you, you notice that you've had, you could sit longer than 45 minutes. Maybe some of you had that, ex- maybe not. <laughs> right, maybe you're having spiritual sleepiness. Um, or some people experience when they meditate for long periods of time, they get a lot of energy and they need less sleep. So it's this quality of energy and um, joy, and it just comes through our hearts and bodies, and it, it's... Um, It comes from practice. 
And it's helpful to be balanced. Like this energy, it helps to be really balanced. And that's one of the reasons we offer Qigong here, you know, because it's a balancing practice for working with your energy, the energy that comes as we do spiritual practice. We learn, you know, as we develop and as we have more energy in our lives, we can, our lives can become this expression of our goodness. You know, this goodness can go out into the world and we get a lot of energy. We can have a lot of energy because we know we're doing good things and we're being people in the world that other people respect and we respect ourselves. And there's a sense of we can be big and the energy can be quite balanced so you know when it's time to take breaks. You might be a person with a lot of energy and then you say, oh, but this is my time. This is when I go on retreat or I go on vacation or I don't talk to people for a while, or whatever it is that helps balance your energy. So we can, get, we can find our way in the world expressing this beautiful quality of energy. And I really invite us to have this energy come out in a way that you're most passionate about, so that you can be as big in the world as you want to be and as you need to be. And once I had this exercise, I did this exercise, and I just invite you to do it for one second. So just close your eyes for a sec. And imagine yourself in the world. Imagine if you, you were doing what you want to be doing in the world. Imagine what it would be like if you were just doing exactly what you wanted to be doing. And it could be career, it could be passion, it could be art, it could anything that you feel drawn to. Okay. And now make it bigger. So imagine doing this, but even on a larger scale, make it bigger. Okay, you got that? And now make it bigger. <laughs> and see what happens. Okay, open your eyes. I know what happened to me when I first did that. I got really scared. Because I thought, oh no, I can't express my energy in the world in such a big way. But that's just a thought. It's a belief system. It's where our culture tells us we can't be big and we can't do what we want to do. And I'm learning to really trust the movement forward of energy. So the next one is, um, wait a minute. Here's what Martha Graham said before I go on. She said, the modern dancer, there is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that's translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. The world will not have it. It's not your business to determine how good it is nor how it compares with other expressions. It's your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, and to keep the channel open. That's a good quote. 
So loving kindness, metta, is the next parami. So I hope you're starting to get this picture of this tapestry of an awakened heart and mind like this. Wow, you know, this, there's kindness and there's patience and there's joy and there's, there's just so many qualities in this awakened mind. And it's not, um, it's not just one thing. It's not like we get enlightened and boom, we're just kind. You know, or we—I mean, I don't know what your preconception is, but it's—it's so—it's so complex and beautiful. So, metta, loving kindness, the quality of um, a heart that is has unattached loving. The Dalai Lama says, "My religion is kindness." I think that's a good one. My religion is kindness. Let's, let's just practice. Forget all the complexities of religion. Let's just practice kindness. And metta to ourselves is so important. And Deborah was talking last night about this, the way we carry the self-hatred. And our, the Buddha said, you can search the whole world over and find no one as worthy of love as you. That means that to have loving kindness for others, we have to start with ourselves. We have to start with ourselves. And we do this on the cushion. We practice it on the cushion. We come back again and again and meet our experience with kindness. It's not easy, especially in a culture that tells us we're not okay. But we're learning. And it's possible. It's really possible. And I've seen over time the level of judgments, of self-judgment has shifted inside me. I used to judge myself, oh, I'm doing such a bad job, get to work, I need to go hard. You know, I was mean to, I was really, really mean to myself. And many years later, after practicing, I'm not that mean anymore. It feels like this tremendous relief. I just kept catching it. You know, I just kept noticing every time I was mean, I would be mindful. And then I would develop the loving kindness more and more. And those two things worked to change, change me, and can change all of you. And then as this loving kindness develops inside ourselves, we begin to spread it out to everyone and everything. It's like this natural radiance of our hearts and mind, and it just spreads. And you know when you meet someone and you connect with them and you feel like they are so loving? Like they're just, they just, they just emanate love. This is, a, this is part of our birthright. We can feel, we can be this love. And not in any kind of sickly, sweet, hallmark, none of that. It's just, it's just when our mind is happy and, and relaxed and open and spacious, there is love in it or joy or kindness. It is so, it's there. It's there. So two more to go. Equanimity, 
Equanimity is the quality of even-mindedness. A mind that can be present with whatever arises. And that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing on this meditation cushion. If there's pain, this is what pain is like this. If there's joy, joy is like this. If there's sorrow, sorrow is like this. Can we be thing with things exactly as they are? And in the moments that you can, that's equanimity. You know, I've, people, various people have come to me today and said, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what was happening. It was, there was so much pain, I was remembering this memory, but sort of underneath it, I felt kind of okay. That's equanimity. That's what we're developing here. That's what we're doing. It's such a profound um, quality of our, of our minds that we can all have. It's like this too, and this. And it ties into our metta because our metta can be loving, 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 but it doesn't have the balance to it. And the equanimity gives it a kind of um, realism, like loving, 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 but also grounded in the truth of things, in things as they are. So it's a beautiful quality. And then this the last one I'll do, and it's the quality of generosity. And usually when you read this list, you say it first. But I decided to say it last because even though in some ways it's a really simple one, you just be generous, it also can be the most beautiful expression of being a human in this world. That we can, we can be generous, we can do generous acts, we can be generous here when we're practicing. But we can also create a life that's devoted to generosity, to service, to helping others wake up in this world. And I like to teach about the bodhisattva a being whose life is dedicated to the benefit of all beings. So when we do this practice, as we've been saying, it's not selfish. It's about everybody waking up, waking up together. And that as you transform, your inner life transforms and it infects everyone so profoundly. There's no separation between the inner and the outer. So a bodhisattva means an awakened being. And a bodhisattva generally is one who's dedicated to waking up for the benefit of all beings and to serving, to serving. And you can see your practice if you feel drawn in light of this to live a life of wisdom and compassion for the benefit of beings. To wake up best you can for the benefit of beings, to develop these qualities, these paramis, for the benefit of beings as an act of generosity. And I think these times demand it. 
You know, we live in such crazy times. It can be really hard sometimes to be alive. And I feel for me that I've found that the more I can be connected to a kind of greater motivation of serving and concern, the more there's no separation between what I do here and what I do out there, that it's all part of the spiritual life. And there's something so sweet about this connection. It's like it makes real the whole, this, this web of interdependence, that we're all connected. There is no separation. There is no separation. Now we find ourselves at a time in history where the wisdom and compassion that has come down to us for 2,500 years is needed more than ever. This can be a turning point, a time of peace, or a moment that plunges us into the darkest days we've ever seen. It's a challenge we need to recognize. The Bodhisattva Kuan Yin, the beautiful goddess, who's called the hearer of the cries of the world. Bodhisattva Kuan Yin is the hearer of these cries. The world is crying out, and Bodhisattva Kuan Yin is none other than you. So please rise to the occasion in the weeks and months to come and manifest the wisdom and compassion that is your life. So that's the promise of these paramis. In whatever way that feels, you feel connected to, may the paramis, these qualities, may they manifest in beautiful, amazing ways as you practice and as you live and grow in your life. So let's just close our eyes for a moment. This is a bodhisattva vow. For as long as space exists and sentient beings endure, may I be the living ground of love for all beings. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 4, 2006.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.